Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, for your grace, for the opportunity to come and study. We thank you so much for Jesus, who has revealed perfectly the truth about you and your methods and your character. We ask that you will join us today, enlighten our minds, draw our hearts near to you, and may we be effective in sharing you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are going to be doing lesson three in the quarterly uh, education, and the title this week is The Law as a Teacher. All right, so first, uh, we're going to read the first paragraph in our lesson, The Law as a Teacher. And it says, in warning the Galatians against legalism, Paul wrote, for if there had been a law which gives, a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Of course, if any law could have given life, it would have been God's law. And yet Paul's point is that for us as sinners, even God's law can't give life. Why? But the scripture has confirmed all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What do you hear in this passage? What is Paul dealing with? I think that they accurately identify. He's dealing with legalism. The idea that God's laws are rules that if you follow them and keep it perfectly in your behavior, that somehow your perfect law keeping can uh, result in righteousness or eternal life. It, it, is it possible for us to do that? No. Wendell. The law is not the remedy. The law is not the remedy, he said. Life doesn't come from the law. But does life come from violating the law? Or can life exist or sustain itself while in violation of the law? Consider these historic quotes in light of what Paul says in Galatians and see if we can harmonize them. Because the point here is you can't have life in the law. Desire of Ages, page 19. It will be seen that the glory shining in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. Uh, it will be seen that the glory shining in the, faith of Je- in the face of Jesus is the glory of self-sacrificing love. In the light from Calvary, it will be seen that the law of self-renouncing love is the law of life for earth and heaven. That the love which seeks not our own has its source in the heart of God. And then a couple of pages later on page 21, continuing on. Looking unto Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give. I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I do not my, I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. In these words is set forth the great principle, which is the law of life for the universe. All things receive, all things Christ received from God, but he took in order to give. So in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for the all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus through Christ the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. And then one more from Education, page 103. See what you think. Because we're trying to... This question... You can't get life from the law. All things, both in heaven and in earth, declare that the great law of life is the law of service. The infinite Father ministers to the life of every living thing. Christ came to the earth as he that serves. 
The angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them that shall be heirs of salvation. The same law of service is written upon all things in nature. The birds of the air, the beasts of the field, the trees of the forest, the leaves of the grass, the flowers of the sun, and the sun of the heavens, and the stars of a light. All have their ministry. Lakes and oceans and rivers and springs of water each takes in order to give. Then understanding this description of law, life being giving, and we've talked about the circuit of giving, if we understand this idea of God's law is the law of love, which is service, which is giving, which is the law of life, if you understand that, then you consider these two Bible texts. Hebrews 8.10. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Can't get life from the law, but somehow salvation is related to the law. And then one more Bible text, Romans 2, 12 to 15. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Hmm. That was very clear. Is that confusing? So what is going on now, after I put all this, put it all together, synthesize it in your brain, with the idea that life doesn't come from the law, but restoring us to life requires God putting the law on our hearts. Because we're thinking of the law as rules instead of design law. Okay, so thinking law as rules rather than design law. Okay, other thoughts? Let's ask some basic questions. From where does life originate? God. God. Yes, God is the source of all life. No creature or living organism has life in and of itself. Yes or no? Correct. This is Satan's dream, guys, to have life separate from God. That's the theology of an eternal burning hell, that you can be completely separate from God and still have life. That somehow we as corrupt beings or created beings that are not corrupt, the unfallen beings, somehow created beings have life eternal in themselves. This is a core lie. All life originates in God. Okay, so life originates in God. Basic question. Now, do the design laws of God give life or are they the protocols on which God built life to operate and exist? No. She says, can you say both? So, I don't think so. For instance, do the laws of health give life? No. No. No, God gives life. But does maintaining life require we live in harmony with the laws that he built life to operate upon? Okay? If someone were sick with cancer from heavy smoking and violations of the laws of health, violations of the laws of health cause the disease process, takes them out of harmony with the principles of life, ultimately ruining their life, bringing ultimately death if something doesn't intervene. But intervention happens. 
God miraculously heals their physiology, taking away the cancer, will they maintain health if they continue to smoke? Does the law bring health or does God bring health in life? The law, our harmony with it or not, only sustains us in health or injures us. That's how design law. The law is not the source of life. The law are the protocols upon which God built life to operate, and harmony with it is for our blessing, our good, our happiness. So the laws don't give life, God does, but breaking God's laws damages and ultimately results in death, cutting us off from the source of life in the end. Do you see how design law perspective makes this completely clear? Completely clear. The most important question that underpins essentially every Christian doctrinal question. Seriously, the most important question is, how do you understand God's law? That is the root question. When you're discussing an issue, a doctrinal question, a Bible verse, a a, a theological uh, construct with somebody, and you are on opposite sides, don't see it, back up and simply ask, how do you understand God's law? Before you begin gauging in the question of hell or anything else, how do you understand God's law? If they understand God's law to function like human law, imposed rules, legal accounting, judicial action, imposed punishments, they will never understand your perspective. It doesn't matter how many Bible texts that you give that shows your perspective, they won't understand your perspective if they still filter it through, but justice requires infliction of punishment because they assume the law works that way. They are operating in a false worldview, and all of their conclusions about the Bible and God will be tainted to greater or lesser degrees by Satan's lie about God's law. This is why there's so much division in Christianity. They might accept Jesus as their Savior and teach that we must accept him in order to be saved and that they're saved only through Jesus, but they'll teach that through the lie that it was Jesus dying to pay the penalty to the Father so the Father wouldn't kill them for their sin. It's warped. It's tainted. The entire world is drunk, intoxicated, confused on the wine of this lie about God's law. And we have a message at this time in the earth's history to enlighten the world for the second coming of Christ. The message that calls the people out of the confusion of Babylon of systems of tens of thousands of Christian groups that argue back and forth over this verse or that doctrine or this ritual because that's what you always get with a system of imposed rules. That's why you have so many disagreements in our country and around the world on which are the best laws and which is the best way to keep the laws and which is the best way to deal with this crisis or that crisis and should we do this or should we do that? And this jurisdiction wants to do it this way and this jurisdiction wants to do it that way. They're constantly arguing because they make up rules. And why do so many people get confused about this? Because of how God did appear to use imposed law with the Levitical laws and the Ten Commandments. They look at those examples and they go, see, he does use laws. How can you say he doesn't? He does make up rules. He imposes them right there. There they are. People read quotes like this quote from Christ Object Lessons, which is the same author as the quotes I read a moment ago, where page 305, she writes... God's law is the transcript of his character. It embodies the principles of his kingdom. He who refuses to accept these principles is placing himself outside the channel where God's blessings flow. 
Many people read things like this and think that God does impose law. He gave the Ten Commandments at Sinai. And they think that it's a transcript of God's character. Therefore, it is the full and most perfect expression of his law. You can't get more perfect than his character, and it's a transcript. That's his character right there. They don't understand the word principles in the same context. Then they have a problem with Galatians where Paul says that the Ten Commandments were added later. In other words, the Ten Commandments didn't always exist. The principles of love always existed, but the Ten Commandments didn't. They were added after human sin. And the same author that just wrote the quote we wrote in Patriarchs and Prophets that if man had kept the law of God as given in Eden, there would have been no need for circumcision. And had they kept the ordinance of circumcision, there no need for the Ten Commandments. And had they uh, uh, kept the Ten Commandments, there no need for the added ordinances uh, of uh, the Levitical law. All these things were added because of need. Because of need. Think about parents and children. If your children automatically, somehow you had this child who grew up automatically brushing and flossing, there would never be a need for you to make a rule for them to do so. But if they didn't, you would maybe make that rule. And if that still didn't work, you might make a, a, a new set of guidelines or regulations all to protect them because they don't understand the law of thermodynamics, that things are going to decay if they don't. The, the quote you just paraphrased, what she says is if they had kept principles embodied in the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the Levitical law. Mm-hmm. And just talking about misunderstanding a principle, to, uh, we need to... We need to remember that. You don't just keep the Ten Commandments. You have to, you have to understand the principles yep. behind the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so it's uh, Patriarchs Proverbs 364. Had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need for the additional directions given to Moses. That's good. That's good. This is uh, Story of Redemption, page 145. The law of God existed before man was created. The angels were governed by it. Pause. Did the angels have a law to honor their mother and father? Not to commit adultery that sins would pass down three to four generations? Did the angels have a law in heaven prior to sin commanding them not to make graven images? Not to worship other gods? Was that written somewhere? Was the law that existed in heaven at any time the Ten Commandments? Hmm, Let's keep going with the quote. Satan fell because he transgressed the principles of God's government. Are principles rules or are they protocols, design laws? What are principles? They're how reality operates. Continuing on. After Adam and Eve were created, God made made known to them his law. In Eden, before they sinned, God makes known his law. Pause. What do you think that was? A list of ten rules? A list of one rule, don't eat from this tree. Did Adam and Eve have a law posted in Eden prior to their fall that said sins would pass down three and four generations in beings who hadn't sinned? Did that law exist? Think that through, folks. How about did Adam and Eve have a law posted in Eden that they should honor their mother and father? So many Christians I know, they don't actually reason through. It's yes, because there is a sanctuary in heaven. And then the ark 
there is a, a Ten Commandments, and around them there's a halo around the fourth, and so we know those ten are eternal, and they've always been there. The Sabbath itself, we're coming to that in just a second. Just almost there. Good point, good point. This same author, Story of Redemption, 145, continues on. It was not then written, but was rehearsed to them by Jehovah. The Sabbath of the fourth commandment was instituted in Eden. Instituted in Eden. If the Sabbath of the fourth commandment was instituted in Eden, it was not instituted at Sinai, correct? It was instituted in Eden. Conversely, or but that also means... It did not exist before Eden, if it was instituted in Eden. If it wasn't instituted in Sinai, it was instituted in Eden. It was instituted in Eden, it wasn't instituted in heaven. It wouldn't make sense. So the angels did not have a Sabbath commandment in heaven. Interesting. That means it's not going to change when we get there either. We're not going to be keeping Sabbath. Why, why would that be the conclusion? The purpose of the Sabbath is the reason why it will go on. Ah, what was its purpose? A time for reflection, a discussion with God. Partly. A remembrance. Partly. Okay, it's a wedge in the pie. What's, what's more wedges in that pie? It's God's promise to be with his creation. Okay, so he wasn't with his creation before the Sabbath. There was no there was no commitment or promise for God to be with us prior to the Sabbath. That's when he when he did that. Well, it's like the rainbow. He was always with us, but we needed that reassurance. We needed that opportunity to focus. What was the what was the prime issue in the war? What was the prime issue in the war? Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted? Okay. What does the Sabbath bring to that issue evidence. evidence of freedom. Put those two together. Evidence of liberty. Freedom. That's what it's evidence of. That God doesn't coerce. That God creates space and time for his intelligent beings to freely think on their own without coercion and pressure. The Sabbath is evidence of God's methods, truth, presented in love, leaving people free. God rested. What did he rest from? Providing evidence. Well, he, no, 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 no. The Sabbath was evidence. evidence. Yeah. But, he rested but, from this exercise of power. Hey, yes, he rested from creating de novo, expending power to create a world, to create life. In other words, power use he rested from. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested his power. He stepped back and said, now this day, without me using power, so for alternative future, the Sabbath continues to exist for alternative future as perpetual eternal evidence of God's methods, truth presented in love, leaving people free. And every Sabbath, the universe, says in Isaiah, comes together to celebrate the character of God as revealed in creation, as revealed in the Sabbath, as revealed ultimately in the life of Christ. But its existence perpetual. But prior to the allegations and the war, there was no need for the evidence to refute the lie. So I see. So yes, the Sabbath of the fourth man was instituted in Eden. After God had made the world and created man upon the earth, He made a Sabbath for man. And after Adam's sin and fall, nothing could 
was taken from the law of God. The principles of the Ten Commandments existed before the fall and were of a character suited for the condition of a holy order of beings. After the fall, the principles of those precepts were not changed, but additional precepts were given to meet man in his fallen state. So the principles of love, not changed, but additional precepts given. And those additional precepts that were given to meet us in our fallen state, things like, Sins will pass down three and four generations. That's an additional precept to meet us in our fallen state. Um, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't bear false witness. None of that has to be given to people in a sinless state. But those precepts, if you love people, you don't do those things. They were given to meet us in our fallen state. And then one more quote. This is out of First Bible Commentary 1004. Excuse me, 1104. 1104. The law of God existed before the creation of man or else Adam could not have sinned. After the transgression of Adam, the principles of the law were not changed. Principles, not changed. Love wasn't changed. But were definitely arranged and expressed to meet man in his fallen condition. So the Ten Commandments written are not the eternal expression of the law of God. They were a distillation, a codification, written to meet man in his fallen state. Why did God use it? And, and this is important because many people get stuck in a human-imposed law model because of the Ten Commandments. It, it makes it appear as if God makes up rules. No, this is not a system of rules you've got to obey. What's its purpose? Diagnosis. The Ten Commandments operate like an MRI to the soul. The mirror we look in to reveal the defect, to lead us to the physician for health. MRIs are not needed when there's no sickness, there's no disease of any kind. The Ten Commandments not needed when there's no sin. sin. The law was given, and that's why Paul says later, the law um, in 1 Timothy 1.8, that it was not given for the righteous, but for the wicked. That's why the law was given. For those who live outside of God's design, to expose and diagnose and bring conviction and lead them to the heavenly physician for healing. That's his purpose. Sunday's lesson. Last two paragraphs. I think it's important to point out that in the Bible, in the Scripture, some people get hung up with different verses that refer to the law. And I mean, the law doesn't, the use of the word law does not always mean the same thing in all Scripture. That's correct. It can be the written Ten Commandments. It can be the first five books. It could be... The entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament, Mm -hmm. etc. And so we get hung up over using texts that don't apply... And so this is an important point you're bringing up. It happens in my class all the time. I get emails from people all the time because I use a word meaning one thing. They hear that word and think I mean something other than what I mean. And they take offense or they get upset or they get agitated and they will send emails criticizing what we teach because they think I said something I never said. Using the word law can mean Ten Commandments, can mean Levitical law, can mean the first five books of Moses, can mean the entire Old Testament they refer to. There's many examples in scripture where this happens. And so one of the first things to do if you think something was said that that was, was objectionable is to clarify. Hey, did you mean this? This is what I thought you said. Is that what you meant? I have some people that email and do that. I appreciate that so much. I thought this is what you said. Uh, I'm going to clarify. Is that what you meant? Beautiful. Mature. I love that. Thank you, Wendell. Uh, Sunday's uh, lesson, uh, last two paragraphs read, the first they hear and then they learn to fear God. 
That is, learning the law presupposes that fear will not be a natural outcome of knowing the law. The process of fearing God must be learned. Moses implies that knowledge and fear are a process, not an immediate cause and effect relationship. Also, what does fear God mean when the people are told that you should Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Perhaps we can compare it to the way a child loves and fears a good father, a father who reveals his love and care by showing that he, sa- that he says what he means and he means what he says. With such a father, if you do wrong, you will indeed suffer the consequences of that wrongdoing, yes, We can and must love and fear God at the same time. They are not contradictory ideas. The more we learn about God, the more we come to love him because of his goodness. And yet at the same time, the more we come to know about God, the more we can fear him too because we can see just how holy and righteous he is and how sinful and unrighteous we are in contrast and how it is only by grace, undeserved merit, that we are not destroyed. Didn't that just warm Eve's heart, she said. As we read this, to some part of you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Some part of your brain go, wait a minute. Hold on. Let's examine that. The more we come to know about God, the more we can fear him too, because we can see just how holy and righteous he is and how sinful and unrighteous we are in contrast and how it is only by his, by grace, undeserved merit that we are not destroyed. Does this sound like they mean fear as in awe and admiration or fear as in dread, terror, and be afraid? Okay. So they mean the latter. But the problem, there's serious problems with that. First John 4.18. There is no fear in love. But perfect fear, perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Wait, we're to come to know God so that we love him. And the more we love him, according to John, the less fear we have. Because if we remain in fear, we are not made perfect in love. But the lesson says that the more we come to know him, the more fear we have while we love him. Do you see the infection of Satan here? This is Satan's lie at operation. It's rooted. Christianity is desperate to be free of it. Wendell. They're saying that God is a source of the punishment, that God is a source of the the bad news that happens if we are less than perfect. Because... What's the root of it? You, you've, you're exactly right, but there's an underlying premise below that that causes them to say that. What is it? They're understanding the law. They're understanding the law. We talked about earlier. If you understand God's law works like human law, then justice requires the rule giver to punish lawbreakers. And therefore, we must be afraid because if we, if we don't accept his grace in Jesus who loved us, then he will punish us. So love him, but fear him. This idea is a combination of fear and love. This idea of comp- combining fear and love together as being holy or virtuous, is totally from Satan. It's evil. It's destructive. It stems from the imposed law lie that we just talked about, that God uses imposed law and punishes like Satan claims he does. The entire thing is false. God is not the source of pain, suffering, or death. God is the source of life. 
pain, suffering, and death are the result of actions that break God's law and take us away from him. The closer we come to God, the more we are restored to harmony with him, the more he restores in us his law, writes his law in our hearts and mind, the more uh, unity we have with him, the closer we come to God, the more love we have, the less fear we have, and ultimately we have eternal life in unity with him. He's the source of life. Let me say this very clearly. Anything that incites fear, we're talking the dread, the terror, not the awe and admiration, anything that incites fear of God obstructs God's plan to save us. I'm going to say that again. Anything that incites fear of God obstructs his plan to save us. Now, there is a place where the immature, the child who doesn't understand reality, may attribute in their ignorance of reality fear to the parent, and the loving parent allows the child's misunderstanding to exist for a period of time in order to protect the child in their immaturity from outside dangers. But the parent expects the child to grow up and realize there was never a need to be afraid of the parent. For instance, a, parent, a loving parent will set a rule that their small children do not play in the street. And if they catch a rebellious, disobedient child playing in the street, a loving parent will discipline Discipline, root word disciple, means to teach. The discipline will often have a consequence inflicted by the parent that's painful to the child. And the child at that age may come to stay out of the street because they fear the parent. It's the beginning of wisdom. They fear the parent. In the child's mind, it's wrong to play in the street because mommy and daddy will punish. In the child's mind, their fear is focused on what mommy and daddy will do. But where's the real threat for mommy and daddy? The real threat, what the child should be afraid of, is getting hit by a car, which takes them out of harmony with the laws of health and destroys them. Now, notice how the loving parent steps in between the child, who doesn't understand reality, and reality, and takes on their shoulders the role of being the source of the pain and discomfort to the child in order to protect the child. But they expect the child to grow up. And all of us know exactly what I'm talking about. We all, we all were there at one time in our childhood, and we all look back on that, and we realize we never needed to actually be afraid of the parent. Never. This is God of the Old Testament, constantly taking on his shoulders that position of being the source to these immature kids who are running headlong over the cliff of idolatry, constantly allowing himself to be viewed as the source when it's the actual worshiping false gods, it's destroying their consciences, the characters, hardening their hearts. Satan has tricked billions by his lie about God's law to be more afraid of God, who is trying to save them, than the sin in their life, which is killing them. Billions are more afraid of God than they are of sin. And thus, all the theology is designed to hide and protect us from God. The persistent idea that a right attitude toward our Heavenly Father is both love and fear, this idea that, 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 the, that they articulated that the, it's right to have both love and fear, in fact, it's necessary, comes straight out of Romanism. I'm going to read a little section from my book, The God-Shaped Heart. In it, I quote, um, 
Jürgen Moltmann's book, The Son of Righteousness, Arise. Our instinctive notions of dictator gods are based on human-imposed law constructs, gods of power who rule by coercion. This is level four and below thinking. This is immaturity. But Jesus overturns such ideas. Jesus reveals a God who presents truth and love and leaves his creatures free. The apostles, once freed from the false God view, preached Jesus and him crucified and presented God's law of love, and the New Testament church grew. But sadly, after apostolic times, Christianity gave up its hold on selfless, on the selfless God of love. The church rejected the understanding that God is creator and his laws are built on the, built into the fabric of reality and replaced this truth with an authoritarian God in the mold of Caesar. A dictator who demands worship on threats of punishment. Jürgen Moltmann, in his book, Son of Righteousness Arise, writes, The Roman father of a family corresponds to the Roman father gods and to the later father of the gods, Jupiter, acting as a household priest. The Caesar was seen as the pater patria, the father of his country, and ruled as priestly king of priestly, of priestly father, the Pontifex Maximus. On the one hand, these titles reflect the people's expectation of protection by the ruler, and on the other, his unrestricted power. The father of his country is omnipotent, pater omnipotens. In Lactant, Lactantius's Writing about the wrath of God, we can clearly see how the Roman idea of the Father has been transferred to the Christian God. The one God is both Lord and Father, his power being fatherly and also supreme. We should love him because he is the Father, but we should also fear him because he's the Lord. In both persons, he's deserving of worship. Who would not love the father of his soul with a proper childlike reverence? And who, without punishment, could disdain the one as the ruler of all things has the true power over all? Did you understand what that said? Okay. When the God of love, whom Jesus revealed, is replaced with this dictator view, this idea, the Roman father was both the loving father protector and also the enforcer and punisher. Thus, the Roman Caesar protected the country and also enforced its laws and punishment. Thus, God protects people, but also is a source of inflicted pain and punishment. God is in the mold of Caesar. And thus, this idea that we should love our Heavenly Father, but we should also fear him because if we don't obey him, he'll punish us, is Roman. It's not Christian. It's pagan. That's what it's, that's, that's what the history reveals. That's what reality reveals. When the God of love, whom Jesus revealed, is replaced with this dictator view, it is no surprise that Christian husbands abuse their wives as frequently as people who never accept Christ. That's the method of the world. You must punish disobedience. Why they abuse their children no different than people who don't accept Christ. Didn't Rome actually have a, a two-faced god, Janus, uh, uh, or something like that? Uh, I think, but I don't know. Uh, Monday's lesson, that the law is a witness against us. It actually refers to Deuteronomy 31. Let's look at Deuteronomy 31. I'm going to read out of the NIV, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. Get your mind around that. You go to, you go to church this weekend. 
And as you go to church, the preacher gets up and the Lord's presence comes down in the form of a brilliant fiery cloud and speaks to him. And then he comes with a message for you. Are you going to listen? And this is quite impressive if you think about it. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your fathers. And these people will soon prostitute themselves with foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I've made with them. On that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and difficulties will come upon them. And on that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come upon us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. Pause right here. That's after verse 18. What's being described? What kind of law? Is there a law being described here? Cause and effect. Cause and effect. Sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. God left them. Yeah. So what law? Liberty. Law of liberty. Law of liberty. This is not the God of Rome. Does, does a Roman Caesar say, hey, if you don't want to follow me, it's okay. I'll set your nations free. You Germanic tribes, you don't have to become part of Rome if you don't want to. It's all good. You can go your own way. Is that what a Roman Caesar does? No. That's why they were at war constantly. Coercion. You're not going to, I will have to punish you. No, this is law of liberty also. He leaves them free. Why does God do this? What choice does God actually have? given how his government runs. If God were to use power to continue to bless and protect people who are in rebellion from him, who are violating his laws, but he somehow blesses them anyway. For instance, people touch hot stoves, but they don't get burned. People smoke two packs a day and they get better health. Okay, what would be learned from that? No consequences. Do whatever you want. Become more reprobate. Would it also mean God violates his own laws? Yes, he becomes a violator of his own laws. What happens if he uses power to force people into compliance? Violates the law of liberty, right? We are not free. We're robots or we become slaves. Love can't exist in that atmosphere. What does the Bible call it when God leaves people to reap what they have chosen in rebellion against him? That's God's wrath. You see it right here. Here's the wrath of God. He leaves them free to reap. the pain. And he tells them what it's going to be. It's like a parent can say to a kid, look, you're free to smoke. You're free to do drugs. You're 23 years of age. I can't stop you. But there will be no good outcomes from you. You're not going to have good relationships. You're not going to have good jobs. You're not going to get a good education. You're not going to do well in school. You're not going to have good health. You're not going to have a good relationship with your own children. Everything, you're going to have a corrupt life, but you're free to do it. It's completely predictable. Why does harm come to them? Is God inflicting it? No. It's the only result of breaking God's design law. Pain, suffering, ultimately death comes when we're outside of God's laws. So what is God wanting for them to understand? How his design laws work. Do you think we today understand it any better than they did? As a, as a human population, I'm not saying this room. I think in this room we, we do. But as the world, the world doesn't understand this any better than it did then. It's so sad. And so the law was written as a witness against them to show that their actions are their own downfall. It witnesses against what they're doing. 
verse 19. Now write down for yourself this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness against them. If you read the words of Deuteronomy 13, you'll see that it describes reality, what God did for them, how they rebelled and worshiped demons, how God leaves them free, how they reap what they have sown, how God is always love. It witnesses how God's design laws function and why bad things come. It's a witness to reality. Verse 20. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. God knows the selfish human heart. He knows what selfishness leads people to do. He also knows the future. And he also knows that his grace would still be working for our benefit. Wednesday's lesson. Yeah, Wendell. It's interesting that they have the song that was given to Moses that they were to sing to remind them of what would happen if they abandoned God, etc. It's interesting that in Revelation 15, what are the saints singing? The song of their experience. The song of Moses and the Lamb. It's still true. The same things will happen. Heaven forbid. He won't. If in the future we abandon God, the same thing is going to happen. His same principles are are in in eternity. Yeah. It's a song of reality. Yeah. Song of reality. That's, That's how reality works. And we have the history of the Moses is the history of deliverance from Egypt and deliverance of captivity. So the song of Moses in Revelation is our deliverance from the captivity of sin and the suffering that comes when we won't let him deliver us from sin. So, yeah, it's very good. But Wednesday's lesson, second paragraph. Whatever education venue we are in, we must stress the importance of obedience. Yet our students are aren't stupid. They will notice sooner or later the harsh fact that some people are faithful, loving, and obedient, and yet, what? what? Disaster strikes them as well. How do we explain this? The fact is, we can't. We live in a world of sin and evil, a world in which the great controversy rages, and none of us are immune to it. We can't explain why bad things happen? Really? Huh. I didn't quite agree with that conclusion that we're just without any explanation. It makes me wonder if this was written by people who were struggling at what we call level two moral development. This is the, the marketplace exchange, the quid pro quo. This is the, the, the moral development of the, of the, um, the health wellness gospel, you do the right things, then you get the right outcomes. And, and since I did the right things and you get the right outcomes, it makes no sense to somebody at that level. And this was the, the level of the Pharisees 2,000 years ago when they taught that disease was punishment from God for sin. And they were angry at Jesus because he was healing disease and he had no right to take the punishment off these people. They were clearly sinners being punished by God. How dare he overrule God by trying to heal, by healing these people? This is a thinker of the apostles who asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? It's very clear he's blind. Somebody had to sin. This is level two thinking. And Jesus, of course, said neither. This is the thinking of those who, when tragedy strikes and a child dies, they say to their 
so-called friend at church, you must have some sin in your life that this happened. You haven't ever heard of that happening? happens all too often. It's sick. It's childish. It's immature. It's not how God's kingdom works. While it is true, there is cause and effect because of God's design laws we just went through. And in general, you reap benefits from living in harmony with God's laws, eat healthy, exercise, uh, take rest at regular intervals, sleep well, don't violate your bodies with toxins, uh, have a healthy relationship with God and others. There's benefits. There's no question. There is. There's also no question that if you violate all these principles that you will reap consequences that are damaging the story. That's all true. But we also must remember other variables. We're not living in an Eden, a sinless world. We are living in a war zone. We're living in the world of the prince of darkness. We're living in a world where Satan has certain liberties and his agents have certain liberties to act and act in evil, to exploit, to injure, to harm. The Bible describes all nature groans under the weight of sin. There are all kinds of physical diseases and defects that affect every human being regardless of their righteous character. Paul had some physical malady he constantly talked to the Lord about. When Christ said, do you think the people that the power fell on were any worse than anybody else? That's a good one, yeah. Uh, And every person essentially other than maybe a couple that we know about in the Bible, die of old age. Which is the first death experience. Which is the outworking of the law of sin and death on our physical bodies. We are decaying and dying. It has nothing, it, aging and dying of old age has nothing to do with your righteous character. We have a pretty solid example of how the world treats, the, treats one who has a righteous character. Yeah. Yes, we have many examples of Jesus, of course, ultimately. There are natural disasters because nature is unraveling as a result of God slowly loosening the four winds, the angels holding the four winds of strife as Satan gets more and more freedom because the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit on earth is the hearts and minds of people. We're the Spirit's temple, and as hearts and minds close by the billions, we are closing out the presence of God on earth so he grants us freedom and slowly withdraws and Satan gets more liberty and nature becomes more unstable and the planet becomes more and we get more natural disasters and more violence and more wickedness and more mobs and more other things. There are pestilences and poisons and environmental toxins. The reason the righteous suffer is not a mystery. It is clear and understandable. Yet in their suffering, the righteous always have God with them. They retain their peace internal to themselves. They retained their new heart and right spirit. They retain their love for God and others. They retain their hope and surety for a better world. And thus I'm going to share with you out of Hebrews 11, a few verses out of the remedy. Based on his confidence in God, Abraham made his home in the land promised to him, even though he was like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents. He did as did his son Isaac and grandson Jacob, who were also heirs of God's promise. He wasn't concerned with earthly palaces because he was looking forward to living in the city whose foundation, architect, and builder is God. All of these people were living in trust, confident in God when, he, when they died. 
They did not receive all the things promised, but they understood them in their minds and rejoiced in their reality. And they openly acknowledged that they were strangers and aliens and not part of this selfish earth. Are we part of this selfish earth? They were making it plainly known that they wanted a different land, a land of their own. And they didn't want the land they they had left, for they could have easily returned from where they had come. No, they were longing for a better country, a land free from selfishness, disease, death, crime, and exploitation, where guards, police, and security are no longer needed. They were longing for heaven. Therefore, God is honored to be known as their God. For they value his methods of love, truth, and freedom, and he has prepared an eternal home for them. Do we have this perspective here today? Are we foreigners and aliens in a world infected with selfishness? And because of this, do we understand bad things happen to good people? But we know that this sinful world is not our home. See, this is why we at Common Reason Ministries refuse to promote political groups or political politicians or nations over one over another because this world is not our home. Jesus said his kingdom is not of this world. We cannot, I'm going to say this really loud and clear, we cannot achieve God's missions and goals through human governments. You can't do it. And if you try, you'll get sucked into a trap that undermines the kingdom of God. Recently, I pointed out the failings of trying to do this, and some who have aligned with one political group or another have gotten offended and emailed me. So hear me clearly. I am not trying to take any political side, but I am trying to free you from loyalty to any human system and establish you in loyalty to the kingdom of God. That's what I'm trying to do. Last paragraph. I'm going to skip that and jump to Thursday's lesson. And we'll jump to Thursday's lesson because we're running out of time. Thursday's lesson, first paragraph. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lived the only human life in perfect obedience to his Father, in perfect obedience to the law of God. He did this so that he could not only be our substitute, which he was, but also our example, which he was, which he was too. Why did Jesus have to die in order to save us? The big question. What law lends? As soon as you have that, why do you think Jesus had to die? How do you understand God's law? Don't, don't even answer that question with somebody. Don't even get into the discussion. Do you believe Jesus had to die for our salvation? Absolutely. Well, why? How do you understand God's law? That will, because if your diagnosis is wrong, your treatment is wrong. So if you have human law, well, we're in legal trouble and we're under condemnation. The law requires that God must punish. And if that's the law, then Jesus died to fulfill that legal obligation. Completely wrong diagnosis, completely wrong explanation. We do believe in substitutionary atonement. People accuse us all the time. We, Jennings doesn't believe in substitutionary No, we believe in biblical, though, not this man-made Roman thing. Here's the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, substitution. But then it tells you why. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, the penal substitution lie that's based on the lie that God's law works like human law denies this reality. Here's what they teach. He who knew no sin, uh, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might, we might be declared righteous even though we're not. Subtle. But that's what they teach. God declares you in heaven in a legal accounting process to be righteous even though you're not. You're not righteous. Only Jesus is righteous. You get declared legally righteous. So in God's eyes, he sees you as righteous even though you're still not righteous. That's not what the Bible teaches. You become righteous. You get a new heart and right here. You're reborn. You're recreated. You get the law written on your heart and mind. You become a partaker of the divine nature. You're renewed. The old is gone. The new has come. It's reality, folks. Penal substitution, imperial Satan's view of God's law. Romanism cheats people out of that and keeps them in fear. So he became a substitute so that he could fix the brokenness. Jesus merged his sinless self with terminal sinful humanity so that he might purge terminal sinful humanity from the infection of fear and selfishness and establish a new humanity, becoming the second Adam, the second head of humanity that he had healed, fixed, and restored. So, Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. The two one, in the context referring to the Jews and the non-Jews. The Jews and the non-Jews are now one in Christ. Christ did something that unified them by by destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Pause. Just step back for a moment. And ask, are there walls of hostility between people groups on this earth? Are there? What are what is the source? What is the cause of the walls of hostility? Is it like most Bible commentators will tell you? Well, the whole cause of the walls of hostility is the Jewish law. Their ceremonial law system is what divides people. If you just get rid of that, they'll have unity. No. This is what almost every Bible commentator will say because it says in in the verse, um, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, that they will say, ah, it was the Jewish law system that was the... No, just look. Is there dividing walls of hostility through ever since that? Was there a dividing wall of hostility between Cain and Abel? Was there? What was it? Selfishness or sin. Sin is the dividing wall of hostility. Fear and selfishness, the heart is what causes divisions and hostility. That is what he came to abolish or destroy. He came to destroy what actually divides and causes hostility, which is sin and humanity. And so, if you keep reading, sin, fear, selfishness, the carnal nature, thus Jesus came to destroy sin that exists in the hearts of sinful human beings, and that's the dividing wall by abolishing it in in the flesh that he assumed... What was the purpose of the added law, the Ten Commandments, the other ordinances? We read it earlier. They were added as a diagnostic instrument to expose sin. Are they necessary once sin's eliminated? Thus he also eliminates the purpose or the need for the law. It's not needed once he eliminates the disease. The the, the MRI is no longer needed. 
So this is what it's talking about. Keep going with the verse. The purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And then this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. One new man, yes. The second Adam is the one new man. His divine self, our fallen humanity, merged in Christ, tempted every way just like we are, yet without sin. We are drug away and enticed by our own evil feelings. And thus he faced in Gethsemane powerful human feelings all the way through the cross, temptation to save self. But he loves perfectly, destroys that infection. Thus, cleansing the human species in his person, becoming the new head of humanity. Thus, once he is made perfect, he becomes the source of salvation for all who obey him. Hebrews 5.9, once he is made perfect. Wasn't he always perfect? No, he's always sinless. Bible perfection is about maturity of character, which has to be developed. And Christ came and developed perfect, sinless human character. And thus, We become partakers of the denied nature through him, and we have a merging of the two. Our fallen selves are joined with his divine self. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We die to the old. The new has come. We get a new heart, new mind, right spirit. And thus we live a new life following a new head. We become the righteousness of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, for your character, for your creatorship, for how you built reality to operate, for the truth that you revealed in Christ, for the victory of Christ, for taking up our brokenness, carrying it to perfection, for becoming the second head of humanity, for the Holy Spirit which takes the victories of Christ and reproduces in us. We ask now for your Spirit to come and, and merge and unite with us. We invite you in. Eradicate the residuals of the old self. May it no no longer be our old selfish self-living, but may it be Christ living in us, that we might be powerful agents for you to lighten this world for your soon return. We pray in your holy name. Amen.